Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Hey, you thought you were going to sit down, but I want you to stand back up. Because, hey, we are jumping into another book this morning of the Bible, and we're going we're gonna to read aloud together again. Yes. Okay, so this is our scripture for this morning. It's only two verses, so it's like you're getting your feet wet again. Um, we're going to read it all aloud together. Ready? One, two, three, read. have a seat. So we are starting a new series this morning, and it is called The Blueprint, The Blueprint, um, which of course um, is sort of a design, a model, a technical drawing, of course, of something that is to be um, constructed according to plan, right? Um, And the term actually came into usage in the late 19th century. Sir John Herschel was the guy who invented the process of making a a blueprint, um, so the, if you were an architect or an engineer, you would draw on um, paper, it was called cartridge paper, and, uh, and then you would get another piece of paper, a, a tracing paper, and they'd sort of sprinkle this ferric um, photosensitive compound upon it, and then as you laid them two together and then put glass over the top, sunlight would shine, and then the magic would happen, right? It would imprint the original upon the tracing paper, making an exact replica. Top technology back in that day, all right? I mean, like, I mean, just think about who came up with this. Like, we're going to come up with this blue sort of, like, dust stuff that then all of a sudden will allow us to copy onto another piece of paper. And what it did is it made for accurate and fast reproduction of drawings, such that you could make an unlimited number of copies the exact same way and then circulate them. And what we have here in Ephesians is a blueprint. We have a blueprint for the church. The Apostle Paul, as he writes this book, does so interestingly without a lot of context. We don't know much of what's going on in Ephesus. It's a letter written to this, a city called Ephesus. That's why it's called to the Ephesians. And um, we don't know what's going on. And that's intentional because there's not like an isolated incident or some problem that he's writing to address. Rather, as a lot of some of the early manuscripts would suggest, this was circulated broadly as a template for what the church was supposed to be, a blueprint. It was a blueprint in terms of theology, a blueprint in terms of community, a blueprint for relationships, a blueprint for the way we are to live out the Christian life. And friends, like just as, just as Grizz prayed, like we, we need this. We need this. Like when I look at our society and I look at our church, we're in need of a blueprint. If you think about individually the kind of confusion in our world today about what it means to be human, and what it means to live a flourishing life, we need a blueprint. 
If you look in our society at the extreme polarization, the extreme political conflict going on, we need a blueprint socially. And if you look at all of the various spiritual perspectives and suggestions in our day, the ways in which faith could take shape or what it could center or hinge upon, it is so clear that spiritually we need a blueprint. We need a reliable design that could be replicated. And so where do we turn? Well, if you're newer to the church, um, where we turn is to the book. Right? We believe in God's word, that God has spoken, and that's why we read it regularly and we teach through books of it to help us understand what God has said. And so where we're looking for our, our blueprint is in the book. We're going to look in the book of Ephesians all the way through the spring. Um, and so for the next few months, buckle up, bring a Bible if you have one. If you don't, talk to me. I'd love to buy you one. Uh, maybe someday we'll have like church Bibles with like hard covers and stuff. We could be all grown up. Um, but uh, seriously, bring the Bible with you so that we can read and study it together. It, of course, is always going to be on the screen, um, but I want you in your own personal copy to begin to make notes and to study this so that it might make an imprint upon you. Um, let me just sort of fly over the book. Um, I want to do this in a few minutes, and then I've got one point this morning, okay? So if you look at chapter one, you have this masterpiece of theology, I mean, it's breathtaking. And the Apostle Paul's so excited as he's writing, he can't even put a period in place, right? He just like run on after run on after run on describing the plan of God's salvation and the design that God had for redemption. It is in every way a clear picture of who we are as human beings and what our problem is and God's solution. It is a proposal of a very high view of God who is at the same time high and holy and yet humble and gracious towards us. It is breathtaking. And that same beastly theology then spills over into chapter two because Paul wants to make it clear, how does someone actually have true faith? What does it mean to be saved? How is one right in relationship with God? And so in chapter 2, he, he makes that plain. How does someone go from spiritual death to spiritual life? And then as if that's not enough, like reconciliation of a joker like me with the living God is not enough. Reconciliation of sinners like us to a God who is holy and without sin, that's not enough. He says the gospel is good enough not just for vertical reconciliation but horizontal. The gospel will change the relationships that we have and has the ability to bring together different kinds of people united in one new humanity. And so in chapter 3, he continues to praise God for the work that he's done. And he prays that God has the father of of all, right? The, and he's the father of all families in heaven and earth. He's the one who names all peoples. And somehow God in Jesus with his love that is higher than we could imagine and wider than we could fathom and deeper than we could go, this love has then come to us in a way to reconcile us to God so that Jesus would be prominent and would be praised throughout all generations. And he wraps it with a worship. Praise, 
Doxology is the word. And then the book's just getting started. The first half of the book, chapters one through three, tell of God's incredibly divine creation called the church. We are a divine creation made by God, brought together as one new person in Jesus. And then in chapters three through six, the second half of the book, he works that out. And in chapter four, you get this, in, this helpful portrait of what it means not only to live in the church, but to live united in the church. Because in case you didn't know, the church was intended to be diverse from the very, from the very beginnings. It was intended to be diverse in terms of the gifts in the body, the talents among God's people. It was tended, intended to be diverse in terms of the ethnicities brought together. It was intended to be diverse in terms of socioeconomic status. And here in Ephesians, the key to it becoming unified is revealed. And then not only does he talk about diversity in unity, but how that diversity in unity builds itself up to maturity, how we grow in the faith. Chapter 4 lays that out clearly and then spills into chapter 5 telling us to imitate God, to walk as Jesus walked, as one who gave himself up as a sacrifice and a fragrant offering, one who loved much. We're to pattern our lives after him because we as the church have gone from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. And we then are to walk, to live as people of light in the world, putting away works and things of darkness and living into a new identity, a new purpose that's, that's ours in Christ. And, and honestly, you feel like that's enough, right? That's enough. But then chapter 6 sort of hits you in the gut because he takes it to a whole other plane, spiritual plane, talking about the battle that we really face. Listen, if you're here this morning and you think that your roommate is the issue, it's not. If you think that your coworker is the issue, if you think that the sickness you face is the issue, if you think that the troubles that you have in life are the issue, it's not. Because the Apostle Paul says, we don't battle against those things. Our battle is not against sort of the flesh and blood and the material, but the battle for Christians is in the spiritual realm and that we must learn to fight a spiritual battle, putting on spiritual armor and fighting a spiritual war. It's amazing. Family, there's so much that I want to show you in this letter. But like I said, I only have time for one point this morning. One point. And I think this point is perhaps the most central theme in the book. So to help you grasp that, what I want to do is walk you through um, the first two verses and then a couple of the first paragraphs, which we'll cover again in more detail in the coming weeks. Um, but before, before you can understand the blueprint, you have to get a clearer picture of reality. You have to get a clear picture of reality, meaning Paul, in order to present a solution, is assuming that we know the problem. And the problem for us is that our reality is one that has fallen from what it should be, that we live in a world that is so fragmented, so disrupted, so torn apart that it's in need of unity. You know, many of you know this, um, but if you didn't know, uh, my wife, Laura, is pregnant. 
Um, yes, we are crazy. Um, and number four is on the way, hopefully at the end of August. Um, we're excited, also a little terrified, um, because there's more of them than there are of us. Uh, but if you didn't know this, one of the sort of like hidden talents of my wife is that she has a great sense of smell, like a keen sense of smell. And when she's pregnant, that thing goes through the roof. I mean, it's like she has a super sniffer that can smell something a, while, a mile away. It's like she has canine powers or something. I don't know, but like imagine the challenge that is for me. Right? She's walking around the house smelling all sorts of things, and everything smells horrible to her. Like I could make like fresh waff, like homemade waffles, and st- like she's like, get that stuff away from me. I've got like a, a nice pot of coffee brewing, and she's like, if you want to stay married, put that out the house, right? Like, it, it, it's just bad, right? So I, when she says something, I'm kind of like, okay, all right, can't be that bad. But the other day, we're in the kitchen. It can't be that bad. We're in the kitchen, and she's like, smells horrible in here. I had like just eaten lunch. I was like, I smelled well enough for me to eat. But she, she... It's like, there's no, there's something wrong. So I open the fridge. It's not the fridge. I kind of looking around the kitchen, nothing, you know. And I go to the pantry. In the pantry, I notice on the shelves, like, hey, that's kind of funny. Like, there's two bags of potatoes. Like, we don't usually buy two bags of potatoes. One was an old bag of potatoes. So we had sweet potatoes that I don't know how long they've been in there. But when I picked up the bag, like, there was mold all over that thing. Like, it's, listen, like, we're just making it right now at our house. And, and it smelled so bad, so bad. And so I carefully picked those up, put them in the trash, and then took it out of the house um, so that sanity and could re- return to our home. Um, but listen, you probably know this, it's obvious, but that is the natural way of things, isn't it? When left to themselves, nature sort of drifts towards decay. Whether it's like the fruit on your counter or the leftovers in your fridge, whether it's the potatoes in your pantry, but things drift towards breakdown, separation, disintegration. That's how life works. And the funny thing to me is that has become for us the natural order and way of things. But if you look at the spiritual order, that's actually not the way things work there. I mean, Jesus, the Bible says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the alpha and the omega. He's the one who doesn't change. Does he work in time to change things? Yes, but he doesn't change in his character at all. The spiritual reality of things is not tending towards decay in the same way. God is different. Which makes me wonder if the natural order is actually nature or if it's fallen reality for us. If the way things were designed to be, the blueprint of things, was that things were to drift towards decay or were things supposed to replicate after God and stay intact. But regardless, our world is one that breaks down one that pulls apart. And it's been that way since the beginning. Fragmentation is everywhere. I didn't say fermentation for you kombucha drinkers, all right? Or for for you craft beer drinkers, but fragmentation, the unraveling of things, is how stuff works. 
in Genesis 3, this is what you see, right? In the first story in the Bible with Adam and Eve, our, parent, our first parents, this is what you see. The breakdown, the disruption of sin. In verse 9 and 10, I think I'm going to start in 8. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God used to do that all the time with them. Just hang, walk, go on a stroll with Adam and Eve. But here in the garden, they had taken the forbidden fruit, what God had asked them not to do. And sin had entered the world. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man and said, where are you? Not like, where is your location? Like, (laughs) I need a GPS. Where are you? But like, where are you? Where is your heart? What is your condition, Adam? And look at his response. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Relationship with God pulled apart masked by leaves sewn together, hidden with deception. And now you can see the breakdown go even further as you read the rest of the story. Adam and Eve, they have their first marriage spat, right? Because after that, Adam and Eve are blaming one another for what happened, and then they're blaming an animal, a snake. Um, And then their children, of course, their brothers, and one of the brothers kills the other brother, And then if you read the rest of Genesis, I mean, it's like murder, betrayal, adultery, deception. Like, it's better than anything out on Netflix or Amazon Prime. I mean, like, seriously, this is is the real deal right here. Disruption, decay, fragmentation. This is exactly what Ephesians hints at in chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 2, let me read it for you as it gives us a picture of sin. It says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Of course, God had told them if they ate the fruit, they would surely die. And the serpent, the snake, also known as Satan, the deceiver, said, no, you won't die. You'll become like God. But they did not become like God. They did. Their actions led to death. And so now we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he's writing to the Christians. They once were dead. They once walked in a certain way, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a a funny phrase for that same snake and serpent that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And what did Adam and Eve do? They disobeyed God and his word, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They chose their own desire. They followed their own passions, doubting the goodness of God and of his word. And decay spilled forth. But is this not your experience? If you look at your own personhood, do you not at times feel like fragments being pulled apart? Does not your mind and your heart and your body and your soul sometimes feel stretched like they're coming undone? Is this not the way that our society has gone? Do we not see the complete dislocation and fragmentation around us socially and politically? 
friends, we live in a fallen reality. And a fragmented world needs hope, needs good news, a vision for flourishing, a blueprint for the way things were supposed to be and the way that one day they will be again, a blueprint for life now and a blueprint for life eternal. What our world needs is to know what God is actually up to. Like, what is God after? What does he want with this world? What does God want with us if what we have desired and taken for ourselves has led to this, what does God desire? What does he will and purpose for us and for this world? So let's not just talk about reality this morning, let's talk about redemption, of which this book is full of. Because the second thing you need to understand the blueprint set forth in this book is that the reality of the fall in its scope and magnitude, the kind of fragmentation of the entire world, which we read in our profession is Jesus is going to renew all of, needs an answer of redemption that is just as comprehensive. And this is what we find in Jesus. So to the beginning of our book we go. Paul, in verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. There's our word. The will of God. What does that mean? Well, Paul's story, if you're unfamiliar with it, he was a man named Saul who persecuted the church, meaning his desire was to shut the thing down. He went around gathering up Christians, putting them into prisons, standing over and signing off on the execution of the earliest followers of Jesus. And then one day on the Damascus road as he's traveling, the king of all of heaven and earth, glory, glory all around, shows up, light shines, and he's taken back, fallen to the ground, and he wonders, who is this powerful being that I have now been confronted with? And he says, Lord, who are you? And of course the voice says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It was by no means Paul's will to be writing this letter. It was not his desire. It was not what he was after, what he was about. But it was God's. And God took a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man like Paul and turned him into a life-giving, church-planting apostle, coaching, leader that turned the world upside down in the first century. By the will of God, Paul is what he is, not by his own will. And that, friends, is the key theme of this book, the will of God. If you look in the first chapter, it, happen, it, it occurs three times in the first 14 verses. And then, of course, in chapter 2, verse 3, the passage we read, desires is the same word for will. And if you flip down to the end of the book in chapter 5, you have um, the same word appearing in verse 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time for the days are evil. He's starting to press and apply this word to them. He says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's what he's longing for them, to understand the will of the Lord. And we'll get there in a minute, but let me finish this introduction. To the saints who are in Ephesus, 
faithful in Christ Jesus. Who is he writing to? To the saints. He's writing to the people who believe in Jesus. He's writing to the people who put their faith, their, their hope, have put all their chips in upon Jesus. And his word to them is grace and peace. Hey, family, stop there. Like, w- would you let that this morning be God's word to you? Like, no matter what you've done this weekend or in the past week or the past month, no matter how you've walked in your own desires and in your own passions, no matter what you're facing in terms of circumstances of life, no matter what you're wrestling with, would you let, if your faith is in Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus rest upon your shoulders this morning? His word to you is grace. It's not buck up. It's not measure up. It's not work harder. But if your faith is in Jesus, his word to you is grace. What you don't deserve, but what's better than you could ever hope for. Grace is yours in Jesus' family. And peace. Man, whatever is unraveling in your world right now, whatever is disruptive, wherever there's conflict, wherever there is decay, wherever there's need for restoration, would you just trust that the living God is here this morning by his spirit saying, peace, my child. Peace, my daughter. Peace, my son. Would you soak it in to the saints' grace? seeking and you're here this morning to the seeking would you let this be a moment where you're provoked because that grace and peace that you've just tasted in the room is not yet yours it's a word for the saints but it could be a word for you It could be a word for you this morning if you believe Jesus for who he is. It could be a word for you this morning if you say, yes, I'm all in with you, Lord. You are the king of kings. You do rule over all. You have made a way. It could be a word for you. And if it's not, you're still welcome here. But know that grace and peace is for the saints in Christ Jesus. we got to read on. And I promise you, you're going to be mad at me for reading. Because I'm about to say some stuff that you're going to be like, what? Promise me, you got to come back next week. <laughs> Blessed be, this is three, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All blessing for you In Christ, every blessing is yours. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, sons and daughters, but sons, of course, in this time period were the ones who inherited everything. 
So sons is important. Sons and daughters. Through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. That's our word, right? To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with in the beloved. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace, which he lavished upon us. He poured it out upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his, give me that word, will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, did you catch it? Predestination, which sorry we're not talking about today, all right? Predestination according to his will, right? Jesus and the mystery of God's will set forth. And then if you read on to to, to verse 11, inheritance, everything that you get as a son and daughter of God, the inheritance that's yours according to his will. So straight in the middle of the passage, in verses 9 and 10, you have a key to the entirety of the book as a whole and to this passage, which is the will of God. The will of God. Okay? Let's, let's, let's listen to this. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of... Okay, sorry. He made known the mystery of his will. So there's something about the will of God that's mysterious. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Like, what is God up to? Like, what's going on? Like, could, could I understand him? And now, Paul's saying, the mystery of his will has been made known. It's been made plain. And here's what it is. If you've ever wondered, what does God want? What does he desire? What is he working for in the world? What is God after? What does he will to happen among us and for us? Well, here it is. If you strip out all the language in the passage and you see the three key statements in this run-on, run-on sentence, here's what you have. Ready? I think we've got one. Maybe next. Maybe next. Maybe not. Maybe not. In him we have redemption. According to his purpose. To unite all things in him. All of the dependent clauses and all that's going on in this passage with its language is hinting at this. In him we have redemption. According to his purpose. Which is. To unite all things in him. This fragmented world we live in, this dislocated, torn apart reality that is our home right now, Jesus is going to unite. In him, redemption will bring about the unity of all things, things in heaven and things on earth. And when you read through this book, you see how crucial that is because What Paul is writing about is Jews and Gentiles who had hated one another and are now both believing in Jesus, becoming united into the same new family of God. What he's writing about is the spiritual reality, which was the sort of 
all of the people on the block in Paul's day trumpeting mysteries about the spiritual world, saying all that matters is the spiritual and the physical is all evil, they are the ones Paul's writing against saying, no, no, Jesus is going to redeem both the spiritual and the physical, uniting them together. When you look at this book, you've got the promises of redemption being united to the present circumstances of your life. You look at this book, you've got diversity of gifting, diversity of background being united into one body. The reversing of the curse. Fragmentation. Being woven together into a whole again. All because of Jesus. This is what God wants. God wants to unite all things in Christ. Redemption and what was set forth as a plan, what was determined beforehand and then made plain and known is that Jesus would unite all things. Listen to the way um, Peter O'Brien writes about this. He says, Christ is the one in whom God chooses to sum up. That's the word for unite to sum up the cosmos, the one in whom he restores harmony to the universe. He is the focal point, not simply the means, the instrument, or the functionary through whom it all occurs. The emphasis is on a universe that is centered and reunited in Christ. The mystery which God has graciously made known refers to the summing up, the bringing together of the fragmented and alienated elements of the universe, all things in Christ as the focal point. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying. You see the scope of what he's talking about? He's not saying some things, he's saying all things. And listen to where this is happening. He's not saying anywhere that you would choose, but he's saying in Christ. The kind of unity, the kind of wholeness that we are longing for in this world cannot be found elsewhere. There is not unity elsewhere. There is no one else that you can unite our fragmented world. Only in King Jesus do we find this kind of wholeness and unity. And so here's what that means. Here's our point. Because unity only comes in Christ, you must be united to Christ. Because unity only comes in Christ, you must be united to Christ. If you want wholeness, if you want healing, if you want the putting back together of things that have been torn apart by sin in our world, that only comes in Jesus. In order to have the unity that comes in Christ, you must be united to Christ. So let me talk about a couple ways that that can be realized for us. All right? Unity will only be realized by union. We won't, we won't get it happen anywhere else but being united to Jesus. And so there's three things that I want to press upon us at the outset of this book. Because I long for greater realization of unity. 
I long for greater realization of the, the blueprint of theology in this book. I long for a greater realization of the beloved community talked about in this letter. I long for greater realization of the spiritual and material harmony. Long for greater realization of people living lives of maturity in Christ. I long for God to have what he desires among us and to do so as we study this book. So the first thing that I want is integration. Integration. We live in a disconnected age. A disconnected age with more means of communication and connection than anywhere, any other time in history. But yet I think the church broadly, and I think us specifically, need integration. Right? We live in a world where the scriptures, we live in a world that views things so differently than the scriptures. Like, the Bible has no category for you knowing something and then acting some different kind of way. Rather, the Bible talks about an integration of our thinking and our feeling and our doing and our being all as one. Meaning God's design is not that we would sort of know some things but then act a different kind of way. God's design is that we would be whole creatures with a whole kind of faith that merges and integrates together both the mind and the heart and the body and the will, everything working together towards love of God and love of others. We need an integrated kind of faith that is whole rather than a fragmented approach to walking with Jesus that says this piece of me doesn't have any place in faith. Number two, we need application. I wonder if some of the fragmented pieces in your own life might actually get woven together as we begin to apply the good news of Jesus as we study this book. Right? We live in an age where positions or convictions signal virtue. But, but then we live in such a way that our values show anything but virtue. We live in a society where, like, we're, we're consistently claiming an identity based on what we think rather than how we live and who we are. And what's needed most is the kind of application pressing our thoughts and philosophies, some of which maybe need to be left behind in the Christian life, because they actually have produced a way of acting in the world that's frankly not that helpful. But, but perhaps what we need more is the application, the pressing of the things that we believe into the various spheres of life that are untouched by the faith. We need a working out and applying of the good news of Jesus into every area of life, rather than saying, this is a piece of my life that doesn't pertain to me following in Jesus. And this is exactly the pattern you see set forth in Ephesians, where chapter one unpacks this incredible theology, and then chapters, in chapters four through six, what's it do? Pushes it in to life, into family, into work, into relationships, into personhood, pressing the good news of Jesus into every piece of our existence. I wonder where the gospel needs to take ground in your own life. Where has your faith not reshaped your thinking, your feeling, your action and doing? All right, last one, and then I'll get off your way. Vision. I'm praying this book provides vision for us. 
meaning we live in a time where biblical literacy is low. The stories of this book, the characters within it, the themes that run across it, the truths that resound and shout from it are far from us. There are not many of us who have read this cover to cover and cover to cover and cover to cover in such a way that it has imprinted upon our minds and our souls a vision for reality and for life. And so we lack sight. And what we need is eyes to see God's blueprint in the world. Eyes to see God's desire and vision for the flourishing of humanity. Eyes to see the way God is redeeming and renewing all things, uniting them in Christ. So I'm praying this would offer you sight to see God's will, God's desire for the various areas of life. Okay, let me read the intro for you one more time and we'll close. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when we were thinking a few moments ago about peace and about grace, and then as I was meditating on this passage and looking out the window while I'm writing, I saw the outline of a massive oak tree and if you know anything about what's going on outside right now, you have piles of snow everywhere, right? Especially in a parking lot. And then you have bare trees. And the funny thing about a tree like this is even when there is nothing on it, the structure of it is apparent. The blueprint is there. And what I've been praying as we start this book is that perhaps there are areas in our church, there are areas in your own life where it looks very much like winter. And all that you could see or maybe all that's there is a bit of structure, an outline of a drawing, a sketch or a plan of what God might do. But my prayer has been as we engage in this word that God over the course of the spring would breathe life into your souls that he would breathe his spirit upon our church such that buds would turn into flowers and that leaves would sprout and that a tree would grow in full that would potentially cast shade and shelter for many around. So may the structure, the blueprint of this book, be what God uses to bring about life in us this spring such that we continue to grow up as a church and to grow up as individuals in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we want to live by your will, but we acknowledge our desires are often contrary. The passions, the hungers, the longings within us sometimes direct us away from you rather than to you, pull us apart from others rather than unite us with them. And so we need your grace and we need your peace. And we long for the kind of unity that you can bring, Lord Jesus. This was a plan, the word says, for the fullness of time. And it's a plan that is realized now in part, but we eagerly wait for it to come more fully.
May it come more fully these next few months in our church. May it come more fully this year in our city. May it come more fully this season in the lives of individuals. And may you unite people to you for the first time and in increasing measure that we might walk in the unity, the peace, the grace that is only found in Christ, in whose name we pray.